as we get set up, I want to uh, start uh, our study this morning, our sermon this morning, by um, telling y'all a, a true story. Just by saying that just makes it more dramatic, doesn't it? Tell you a true story based on actual events. Um, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, can everybody see any questions? We're good to go? All right, very good. All right, so a couple, uh, a couple months back, I, I think probably maybe in the middle of summer, July, or maybe even uh, January, January, June, a couple months back uh, on a Saturday afternoon, um, Christina and I, we went for a walk, and I think we only had, uh, we took our, our two littlest ones on a, on, on a walk, and of course in the summertime it was excruciatingly hot, and in the, uh, and because we knew that, we were going to be prepared, and it was like 90-something degrees, and, and so the dog about died, and all that kind of stuff, but, but we took some drinks with us, and that's a little out of the ordinary. We don't like to carry things, but we knew it was going to be that hot. And, and when we, we did that, Christina brought water, and as awesome as I am, I took Gatorade. And I, we, we went for this, this walk, and as we were going, we were probably two-thirds of the way through. You know, Kate's in the thing, and the stroller, and Lydia's in the stroller, and Christina had her phone sitting on one of the little top pocket areas, and since we didn't want to carry our waters, we put them on, on top. Well, one of the times that I took my Gatorade, I, I drank some of it and closed the lid, put it there, um, and unbeknownst to me, I accidentally did not leave the cap on the Gatorade correctly. I didn't put it on there all the way. It was, you know, you know, sometimes you can screw them on and then it's not right. And, and as her phone was sitting there, the Gatorade was sitting right here, it created this pool of Gatorade in our, in, in our stroller that her iPhone was swimming in. Um, now, when we, when we noticed it, you know, and I, I actually, I went, I, how I noticed it was I picked up my Gatorade and I realized there was like this much left and I was like, who drank my Gatorade? You know, I was like, who drank all my Gatorade? I'm hot, I need some. And I look at the stroller and it's just like drooling, you know, Gatorade off the side and of course pick up the phone and there it is, drenched, even in its Otterbox and everything, right? And as it was there, we were like, this thing's toast, all right? It's not going to work. But it, but it actually continued to work. Um, but, it, but it worked with a little bit of, uh, how do you say it, uh, dysfunctions, right? It didn't work like it used to. Um, let's see, I, I can't list them all because it has, had like different quirks about it. Uh, the camera stopped working on the front. The little button on the, the power button on the side would kind of work randomly. And you, you can set her phone down and it would just randomly turn off and on. Um, sometimes it would just completely power down and power back up. Um, the, so the camera didn't work, the flash didn't work, so the flashlight didn't work, uh, and the, the ringer stopped ringing, right? So the only way she knew it was ringing was if it was vibrating. So if y'all wonder why Christina maybe not have answered a phone, it's because I broke her iPhone. Um, James said there was no help for it because it has Gatorade in it. Uh, water they can handle, but sugar they cannot. So all that to say is I made a mistake and I needed to get my wife a new phone because that's the only thing that could help the, the dysfunction of the phone that she has now. Plus, it's a couple years old, so it made sense. Uh, and so, so in the summer, we, we knew that they would be introducing a new phone. And if, if you're on top of those things, they, they introduce it in September, right? So September 15th this year, they announced the, 
they announced the new phone and all this, and, and, and Christina actually got a little excited about that because she knew what was coming. She knew she was, getting, she was going to get a new phone this year, and she was actually trying to figure out all the little details, what this particular phone was going to have, and, and upgrades from what she was going to get. And so, so doing the correct pennant, actually got up on September 15th at 3.30 in the morning to go on the website to reserve for a phone to make sure she was going to get a phone when it came out. And I did. I got it. Um, and as, they, um, as, as time went, we got, her, we got the, uh, the phone re reserved, um, and she's been so patient, right? I mean, a phone that's been dysfunctional, can't take pictures. I mean, you should have seen her. The front camera still works, so she would be like this, taking pictures, you know? Um, and and it, she's been wonderful and so kind in that, and has not, like, scolded me at all uh, in, in any, of, any of that. Well, the phone was supposed to be here, and hence the word supposed to be, on Friday, this past Friday. September 22nd, FedEx failed us, um, and, and it was supposed to come. We, we, we were waiting for this thing to come, and actually at this point when you track it, you have no idea where it's at. I think it's in Athens. I don't know. Uh, maybe it'll get here eventually. Um, so we've, we've been waiting for this thing. We've been waiting for this, this new thing to come, this new thing. And it's not like her, her old phone it was junk, because it actually still can you still can make calls and still do all the things that a phone is supposed to do. She still can text and, and all those things. So it's not like we, we don't like old things or even older things in our home. We like to have some old air, older antiques and some things from, from family. But there's something good about getting something new. Now, this illustration would have been really awesome if FedEx would have delivered it because then we could have told you how good it felt for my wife finally have a new phone. She'd be like, I'm so happy. You know, I don't have this sticky Gatorade phone anymore. And that would have been great. That would have worked out great. But there's something great feeling about getting something new. And you, you all know what I'm talking about. You understand what it feels like when you get, say, a new phone, new car, some new clothes, whatever it may be. And one of the reasons why it feels so good to get something new is because a lot of times, it's for the very reason why I was saying the illustration with the iPhone, you're replacing something that's busted, something that's broken, or you're replacing something that's just so out of date you can't even use it anymore, right? And there's, there's those things, there, there are those things as, as well, something that may not fit or whatever it, it may be. And what we're going to see this morning is that in Jesus' coming, in Luke, in Jesus' coming, that the kingdom of God has come. I mean, we've, we've talked about the kingdom of God, and we'll continue to talk about the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God has come. And in the Jesus' coming, in the kingdom of God coming, something new has come, something entirely new, right? It's not the, a, a repaired iPhone. It is a brand-new iPhone, something, something totally new, something that is better than the old. And what has come, what is new, is Jesus himself, a new grace, a grace that cannot be applied to, to any works, to anything that is old, to any efforts or any of our best intentions. The new has come. And now this new that has come is not just making something new for the sake of making something new. Right? This, is, this is something that is making something new and outdoing with the old because the old was inefficient and is inefficient to redeem, to reconcile sinful humanity to a holy God. And so with Jesus' coming, everything changed. Everything changed. And we've been seeing that 
We've been seeing that reality throughout our, our time in Luke. So let's look in our Bibles now. Let's read together Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Starting in verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Make them fast in those days. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the, new, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. The old is good. Let's, let's, let's continue this morning as we look at this text together. So our passage this morning comes right on the heels of what we studied two weeks ago of, of Levi in verses 27 through 32, the calling. Jesus called Levi to himself and to follow him. And it's helpful for us to read these together, and I think this is why, why Luke puts these two passages together, because he wants us to understand what Jesus is trying for us to, trying for us to see, to understand about, about the gospel. Remember, the, 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 the gospel writers are, are more interested in us understanding and believing who Christ is and what the gospel is all about more than it is to have a, 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 a completely historical, chronographical account. So these are instances are brought together for us to understand more about the gospel. And what he wants us to see is that the gospel is not for the self-righteous. It is not for the self-righteous, but for those that are unrighteous and for those that need a Savior. And so we have people like Levi. People like Levi, this, this, tax, collector who, who, this tax collector who is welcomed in, who is called to Jesus, the Son of God, who is, who is saved. Jesus is changing everything. He's turning everything upside down. He call, calling Levi this tax collector, and, and then Levi just immediately drops everything. And counts everything as loss, like Paul says. He drops everything, and he, and he follows the Savior. We saw uh, Peter and James and John do that when, when Jesus called them to follow them when they were in Galilee. We see, that, we see the outcome of it when Levi throws a party, a celebration. For Jesus and for the disciples, and he invites all of his all of his tax collecting buddies and scoundrels and sinners to the party, right? And he didn't even didn't even know the proper protocol on on who Christians invite to their parties. Didn't care. And just like when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic guy, dropped down through the roof by some friends, the Pharisees got offended. They got offended again at Levi's party. I mean, I think we can sympathize with them a little bit. Think about it. If a highly popular pastor and teacher was partying with guys who act like the mafia laundering money by exploitation and fraud to fund terrorism of your own people and also hangs out with prostitutes and sinners, yeah, you'd be upset. 
We would be, we would be upset as, as they were upset. There would be a, a meeting the next Sunday with the deacons. Why? This guy's got to go. He eats and drinks with sinners. Drinks, not Coke. Wine, alcohol. With people that they don't want them to associate with. Because he doesn't want them, him, to make them look bad. And as shocking and scandalous as it is for the church to find that a pastor acts this way, it was even more for the Pharisees to see Jesus, this great teacher who's claiming to be the Son of Man, and is doing all these miracles, and is completely not meeting the expectations of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he also sees their disciples doing that. And so the the shock from from Levi's party spills over to the the encounter that we have this morning in, in these verses 33 through 39. Because the Pharisees could not fathom could not fathom that Jesus and his disciples' participation with people, these particular people, but also, check this out, they could not grasp their joyous approach to life. They could not grasp the the joyous approach to life. From everything that they see is they are rejoicing. When you're eating and drinking and partying, you are rejoicing, which excludes as we see, they're fasting. So that time, so that at that, that, at that time, we see the Pharisees get some of John the Baptist's disciples on their side. We see from the different accounts, Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2, give us a little more information about the story. But with evil intentions in their hearts to smear Jesus and his followers, that they are being ir- irreverent and unrighteous and unlawful and unholy because they are rejoicing and partying and not fasting and offering prayers like they do. And you know what? They're absolutely right. Jesus does not look like them. His, their disciples don't look like them. Look at the people Jesus has called. Rejects of society. These are the the elite of society, the smartest of the smartest. Nothing looks like them. Jesus doesn't eat like them. He doesn't pray like them. He doesn't fast like them. He doesn't teach like them. He doesn't hang out with the kinds of people like them. Jesus is totally different, and he's changing everything. And that's the point of our passage that essentially all of Jesus' teaching, his life and his sacrifice, is new wine. That everything that he is doing is bringing about new wine. New wine and a new garment that has come into the world that is not to be mixed with the old and cannot fix the old, but is making something completely new. And so Jesus says, we're going to celebrate We're going to celebrate, and we're going to eat, and we're going to drink, and we are not going to fast right now. So there was a question on fasting. right? That was the accusation toward Jesus. There's this question on on fasting. John's disciples fast, and so did the Pharisees' disciples. And so the question, why don't you fast? Why aren't you, why aren't you disciples fasting? Well, in the Old Testament, 
Let's just kind of get some context here. In the Old Testament, Israel was actually only commanded to fast as a nation one time a year. And that fast was to coincide with, with the Day of Atonement. The day when the, when the high priest would go into the, the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for the sins of the, of the, the nation. That was the only time that, that Israel was commanded to fast as a, once a year. But routinely, routinely fasts fast would be commanded upon the, the nation or, or, or made to the nation. There's one in, in, in Joel. But depending on what was happening on history, they would fast. They would, they would fast, whether it was a national tragedy or, or personal repentance or, or whatever it might have been. However, though, it changed. It started to shift during the Babylonian exile. If you need to go back into your scriptures, you can read, read about that particular time. A very terrible time for Israel as the Lord was judging them through this Babylonian exile. Fasting then switched from, from just a volunteer basis into more of a strict obligation as a way of symbolizing this national mourning and longing to be restored back to the land. So here it starts to, to shift in this, in this direction. And then when we get to what is called the intertestamental period, which is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, roughly a 400-year period, that's when it was believed that, that a person could, could start to gain sort of bonus points before the Lord if they fasted and practiced fasting regularly. So as they started taking the, the law and readapting it to themselves and what they thought would, would produce favor before the Lord if they practiced on a regular basis fasting before the Lord. So instead of it being just a, a, a really um, heartfelt, humble attitude of spiritual discipline to live humbly and dependent and devoted before God, it became a very external way to show everyone how pious and devoted you are. By the time of the Pharisees, they made it pretty well known that if you were a godly person, then you fasted twice a week. Mondays and Thursdays. Those are the days. You were gonna, and, and not only that, when you fasted on those two ways, you were going to look like you are fasting. You're going to make it known that you are not eating lunch today. You're going to wear clothes that make you look a little more emaciated and hungry because you are righteous before the Lord. You would even, you would even there were guys that even would, would put makeup on, cover their faces and make them a little whiter than usual. That shows that you're a little bit more hungry. Right? That's why they call them whitewashed tombs. True religion to the Pharisees was joyless and gloomy, and that is exactly the way right religion was supposed to look. Joyless and gloomy. So fasting to them was sad, it was pathetic, and it was all about an appearance, an appearance of sacrificing. It was all about an appearance, what looked good on the outside, to be uncomfortable, to look uncomfortable. And that's how you achieve godliness. Joyless, miserable, unhappy devotion to God. But compared to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Jesus says this about fasting. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy. Do not look like the, the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Right? That's the makeup. They make themselves look like something they're not so they may be seen by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And not your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Amen. Jesus is not telling us that fasting is to be done with, but Jesus is fasting us that, telling us that fasting is to be done in a way that, that honors the Lord, in a way that's, that's secret, that, that maybe no one even knows that you're fasting. He doesn't cast it out, but he tells us how to fast in a way that honors the Lord. And we see how this worked into the, to the church the apostles fasted. The New Testament church fasted. The first century church fasted. In fact, in the, uh, the, the first manual on church instruction, or Christian instruction, was, it's called the Didache. They, had, they even put a line to that, and they say, let your fast be with the hypocrites. Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but your fast is to be on Wednesdays and Fridays. And why would they say that? It's because they want to, in other words, they want the church to distance themselves from empty fasting. Empty fasting without losing the real value, spiritual value in, in humble fasting. I like what John Calvin says in the Institutes about fasting. He says, let us say something about fasting. Because many, for want knowing is usefulness, undervalue its necessity. And some reject it almost as superfluous. While on the other hand, where they use it of it not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. Holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends. For we practice it either as a restraint on the flesh, to preserve it from licentiousness, which means to give in to sin, or as, as a preparation for prayers and pious meditations, or as the testimony of our humiliation in the presence of God. So not in the presence of others, but in the presence of God when we are desirous of confessing our guilt before Him. So fasting is for our good. It's good for us. I know that in my own life it has proved to be difficult at times, yet very valuable and very profitable. We should fast from food, from television, from internet, whatever it may be, so that we would hunger for the Lord, that we would hunger for, for breakthroughs in our life. You're hungering for things like this, for breakthroughs? Then fast and hunger for the Lord. Whatever it may be, praying for an unbeliever, broken relationship that you need God to restore, a difficult decision about your direction in life, we fast. Um, Luther said, of fasting I say this, it is right to fast frequently in order to subdue and control the body. For when the stomach is full, listen to me brothers and sisters on this, this is so valuable. For when the stomach is full, the body does not serve for preaching, for praying, or for studying, or for doing anything else that is good. Under such circumstances, God's word cannot remain. But one should not fast with a view meriting something by itself as good works. Fasting is important. But Jesus responds to their question because Jesus knows what their fasting is and what they're referring to. But Jesus responds to the question in, in, in verse 34 
and 35 in a, in a very significant way. He draws to some, some really sharp imagery. And if you look at the verses there, you'll see that he's talking about the bridegroom and these, and these wedding attendants that, that, that gather together. And when they're together, they're not looking gloomy. They're not looking sad. They're not looking emaciated like everybody's upset that they're getting married. No, they are celebrating. And this is an image that they would understand knowing the Old Testament. If you remember, thinking back to Hosea. This was a huge image that was used for us by the prophet to describe the relationship between God and his people. And when God said in, in Hosea 2.19, he says, I am betrothed to you forever. And when he's speaking about the bridegroom, that means God has come and it's time for that feast. It's time for that, that coming together. And when God has come together with his people, there cannot be fasting, but only celebrating. And also points forward, Paul picks up on this. The Holy Spirit, I love guiding in all this. Paul picks up on this idea as well of Christ in the church. Now, we are the bride of Christ. Christ is the, the, our bridegroom and, he, and we are the bride. That we are the bride. And he loves us. As husbands are to love their wives, sacrificing for them. Christ loves us self-sacrificially for us. And because of that, Jesus is saying this to them basically is now is the time to be happy and joyful. It's just too glorious for you to fast. Fasting has no value when Jesus is there. But verse 35 tells us, as Jesus predicts, prophesies for us, that there will be a time when the bridegroom will not be there, will, will be taken away. And then, then we will fast. Those days are when you are fast. So Jesus is pointing us to something that we already know. He's pointing us to the cross. He's pointing us to, to His resurrection and then, his, to, then to His ascension. So the time of fasting is now. We fast now. It doesn't mean that we don't celebrate. We absolutely celebrate. We celebrate the bridegroom's coming and we anticipate his return. Even this, even this morning as we've, we've gathered, we're going to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper as the body of Christ. And, and that is our celebration that Christ has come and Christ has paid the, the sacrifice, the atoning work on the cross on our behalf that we can become righteous. And we celebrate that sacrifice, but yet also in the same feast. The same supper we anticipate, don't we? We long for His coming again. And so in our fasting now, it's just like what Calvin says, that we need to devote ourselves to the Lord for sanctification, for perseverance over sin, for great humility, and for repentance. And now when Jesus shifts, He shifts the passage now in verses 36 through 38, to explain to us using short parables. Really short parables to illustrate the reality of what's going on. The reality of what's happening and why they're celebrating and why they're eating and why they're drinking and why they are not fasting. He says, well, let me explain it this way. And he shows it to them in those two illustrations 
of the old garment and the new garment. The, the wine and the wine skins, the new wine, the old wine skins. In this first parable, he tells us this, the greater reality of the, the, that the, the, the new garment, the new garment cannot be put with the old garment. No one, no one will tear a piece of cloth from a new shirt and put it on an old shirt. Now, in our disposable culture, we may not understand that. Because we might do that. Or we'll just go to Walmart, buy another one, no big deal. But in those days, clothing was pretty expensive because it was really hard to manufacture. In fact, there was no manufacturing. It's handmade. And so, this made sense to them. I would not take something that I've sacrificed for and destroy it to fix something that looks already destroyed. It wouldn't make, it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense. In fact, Matthew says that when, the, when the, the unshrunk patch being new will pull away and tear both garments, ruining both. And that's the old garment. And what Jesus is essentially saying is the old garment is Judaism. As good as it was, at its time, has become old. It's worn out. It's a rag. And that you would not take that, something good, and cut it apart and apply it to what's old and what is bad and what is, what is gone, what is not worth it. And that makes sense. That makes sense to us. That makes sense. And so does the second parable. The second parable is about wine and I think even more with the garments, we may have a harder time understanding this one, essentially. Let's make sense with the wine here. See, new wine is not poured into old wineskins. That's what he's saying. See, wineskins were made out of animal hide. They were made out of animal hides, right? So the animal hides were dried, they were tanned, they were turned inside out so you didn't have hair in your wine, right? And they were sewed up and tied together, and you would pour new wine that you were making, and you would pour it into the wine skins. And in the wine skins, the wine there would ferment, right? Wine, wine is the fermentation of grapes, right? And it would ferment. And as it would ferment, it would expand. And as it would expand, the, the animal skins, if they were new wine skins, it would expand with it because they had some elasticity to them. They would, they would stretch out with it. So what Jesus is saying is that if you take new wine that hasn't completely fermented yet and you pour them into old wineskins, the wineskins are going to have their elasticity taken out of them. They're going to be old and dried out. And what's going to happen? They're going to bust. And you just don't waste in the first, in the, in, in the first century. You can't. you can't. You can't afford to waste. And Jesus says, just like you would, no one would ever come close to doing that, Jesus is explaining this new reality of his coming. This new coming that is, that is here to stay. This new, this new coming, this new covenant that is here to stay, that puts away the old. The old is gone. And they are not to be mixed. They are not to be mixed together. And so what Jesus is saying to these guys in those illustrations, in that little parable there, I think it was pretty clear to the Pharisees. Their religion, their works of self-righteousness, and their fasts are the old garments and the old wineskins. 
Jesus is coming, and his ministry and his followers are the new garments and the new wine and the new wineskins. And this new wine does what? It brings joy. It brings celebration. I heard someone say one time, and I, and I absolutely believe this, that Jesus uses this example of wine here because that's what wine does. Wine brings joy. It's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of joy. And you can't take, you can't take old pieces and mix it with the, with the new. You can't take the gospel. You can't take grace and put it and apply it to the law. And as the parable says, is you'll ruin it. The new covenant has come in Christ and with its new reasons to celebrate like guests at a wedding. Like guests at a wedding. The salvation that Jesus has come to bring demands fresh thinking about what it means to live as God's people. And that's what he's telling these guys. Sorry guys, everything you've done, everything you've believed, it's old. It's worn out. It can't be applied. And how do God's people live? I'm glad you asked, Kelly. We live by grace. We live by grace. And we live through faith. And that's what Jesus is saying. We live by grace and we live through faith. Now these are two things. These are two things that the self-righteous understand and it just infuriates as we see the response. They, 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 they can't understand grace. They can't understand faith. Why do I need faith? Because I'm the one who's doing it. Why do I need grace? I'm good. Look at me. Look at my works. Here I have. Look at them. But grace, the grace of God is just radically subversive to self-righteous. It completely undercuts all of their works, and their self-righteousness. It turns their world upside down, doesn't it? Don't we see that throughout the New Testament? That it just turns their world upside down. You see, the Pharisees and self-righteous, they, they like to live according to their own ladders. right? They like to live according to their own ladders. They, they set this ladder up for themselves, and each rung of the ladder is, is them doing what is good, what is right, whatever, fasting, at, at, fill in the blank, is each rung that they get to climb in that ladder. And if you're on this ladder, this is how you get closer to God, is by your good and what, you're, and what you can achieve. And if you're on this ladder, then, then, then your well-being your well-being, your, your happiness, your joy, your security, your satisfaction in this life, your identity is all wrapped up in where you are on that ladder. If you're at the bottom, then you hate yourself. Because you've got no one to compare yourself to. But if you're up at the top, and you're looking good, you've got lots of people to look down on, don't you? Look how much higher than I am. If I'm doing good, if I'm moving up in the ladder, then think God must be happy with me. This is the way of the self-righteous. And so they do whatever it takes 
to get to the top. Even fast, regularly, two days a week, making themselves look good before everyone else. And nothing makes them feel better than to look down on other people. To look down on the ladder and see someone below them. So that if they are maybe not, you know, got up another notch that day, they can say, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not like that woman. You see, the Pharisees needed tax collectors to feel righteous, didn't they? Isn't that funny? They hated them, but they needed them. And so when Jesus is welcoming them into the table, it destroys their ladder, doesn't it? Because here they are, they, they look down and there's no one there. And then they look up and they're like, what's the deal? This isn't fair. This isn't right. Look what I have done. Grace flips this whole ladder upside down. It welcomes the worst and the vilest of sinners and, sh- and it shows us that regardless of who you are, where you are on this self-created ladder, guess what? You need grace too. Man, they don't like that. But see, now, now grace isn't just subversive to religious people. Grace is also subversive to secular, to secular people. To those who are trying to achieve salvation by their own means, of, of their own satisfaction, and their own trying to find joy in this world, to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of stuff. They're fine, trying to find joy in, in life and, and getting the next thing or getting to the next, and that's their ladder. Salvation to, to them may not be asking, what must I do to be, to be saved? But it's how I can get this sense of being satisfied and fulfilled and accepted. That's my identity. And there are billions of people that are doing this. Spending billions of dollars. Building relationships that only get crushed under the weight of, of idols making idols and relationships, life-changing decisions on their, on their life that have catastrophic event, uh, uh, events in their future because of them trying to find satisfaction in, the, in being uh, in, in a certain identity or trying to get the approval of someone else. You see, salvation to the Pharisee, the Pharisees were in, in was works, and it was on their own personal purity. And everyone else that didn't measure up, tax collectors, sinners, the poor, they ostracized and, and they unwelcomed. In all views of self-salvation, like in the secular way I was just mentioning there, it's all the same. Because it may not be the pharisaical rules that they're trying to live by. It's their own rules. It's their, it's their own rules. We make our own rules, our own laws, our own principles that we think that will make us satisfied. That will satisfy us. So let me give you some examples. If your idea of salvation is to have friends accept you and for you to be liked, then your first commandment will be, thou shalt not be uncool. And if we don't measure up to our own version of salvation, then we'll find someone else to blame or we'll look down on someone else just like the Pharisees. How we make ourselves feel better. If your salvation is to have a, a, a right and correct body image, to look like how culture says this is how you're supposed to look, then your prophets are the people on television. Your prophets are, are, are them or what you see on, on, on television. And you have your own little worshipers called Instagram. And those likes are your approval that you're working in the right, dire- right direction. And your law is, 
your Ten Commandments are. Thou shalt always wear trendy clothes. And just like the Pharisees, if other people don't measure up, then we can despise them because they don't look like me. They don't wear cool clothes like me. They don't measure up. They don't have the the image that I have. And so just like the Pharisees, we need other people to make ourselves look better. And and we can apply this to anything. We can apply this to to money. We can apply this to success. We can apply this to, to our education. We can apply this to church. And here's the problem. The great problem is, is what if we don't measure up to, to our own rules? And we don't. We never can. We don't, we don't, we barely can even fit our own rules. We tell ourselves that I'm not going to eat this today. And guess what happens? I'll have just a little bit. I told myself the other day, I think it was Wednesday, I'm not going to have any soda today. None. Cut it off. My wife got mad at me because I ate a whole bag of candy corn by myself. And so I said, I'm not going to have soda today. Guess what I had for lunch? I poured me a glass of Coke. I can't even even measure up to my own rules. And if we don't measure up to the gods that we created, guess what happens to those gods? They turn around and they condemn us. Do you see the futility and the slavery here? All of that is old wineskins. So for the sinner, for the tax collector, and for the Pharisee, all of those, neither whether it's their self-created rules or it is rules that they have manipulated from God's word to be their own, self-salvation just does not work. It can never deliver what it promises, can it? You can never live up to it. There's no joy, there's no satisfaction, there's no real identity. Guess what? You can pretty yourself up and you can make yourself look happy, but guess what? It catches up. No. Real joy and satisfaction and real identity comes in knowing that you have been created to know, to enjoy, and to glorify God. And that's it. Anything less, anything less than that, Anything less than that is drinking old wine. Anything less than that is a cheap substitute for the, for the new wine. And the good news is that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is, that is good news for us. He offers true salvation to be welcomed to God's feast where new wine of Jesus is being served. Where you, where you don't measure up. When you, when you don't measure up, guess what? When you don't measure up, when you don't measure up even in this morning, you come in with all your inadequacies and your sin and all those things, guess what? You are not condemned at this table. Amen. This is a table for sinners. You are not condemned. But rather, God condemned His Son in our place. God's favor and love for you is not based upon where you are on the ladder. There is no ladder. And when you're doing good, when you're doing good, or when you are not doing good, it's not dependent upon that. It's dependent upon the righteousness of Christ. The perfect sacrifice, the new wine that was offered. The new garment that was torn. 
on our behalf. God's love and favor for us is based upon the sacrifice of Jesus to atone for all of our sins. So now before the Lord, we can stand uncondemned. Salvation is not about obeying rules or laws created by ourselves or others, but it is by grace through faith. It is by grace through faith. And so this new wine is good. This new wine is good. It is, it is tasty. It is the best. And it frees us from these old enslaving life of laws and rules and principles, doesn't it? It's completely freeing. It's welcoming versus unwelcoming. It's joyful and feasting on the bread of life versus fasting. It's rejoicing and joy versus grumbling and complaining. We may experience temporary unhappiness when we see our sin before a holy Savior. But just like Peter and just like Levi, it's only temporary. It is only temporary because that brokenness and that undoneness, I made that word up, makes way to joy. It makes way to, to, to joy because we hear our Savior say, come follow me. And that, and that is our joy. The drink from these new wineskins. The grace of Christ. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid many of us, we try to mix the new wine of Jesus with what still remains. We still have these rules that we still try to apply, whether they're you know, rules that we've seen within Christianity or the church or, or these particular rules that, that maybe we've set for ourselves or we feel the weight, the pressure of culture, society, whatever it, it may be. Those are old. The old is gone. The old wine is gone and it can't contain it. Don't drink that. Drink grace. Drink grace. Jesus says that the new has come. Trust me and have faith. So we have many reasons to celebrate, don't we? We have many reasons to celebrate. We celebrate grace. That salvation is by grace alone. By grace alone. Celebrate that, brothers and sisters. Celebrate. It's by grace. You walk in with whatever you got this morning. It's nothing that Jesus has not paid for in full. And nothing in the future, by the way. The new wine of Christ, listen, to, for those who are burdened by sin, the new wine of Christ comes into our lives and it just crashes the party of our own self-reliance, doesn't it? It crushes your pride. It crushes our superiority. It, it crushes our hypocrisy and our self-justification or, or uh, blame-shifting. It crushes our rebellious heart and our broken idols. It crushes it all. And the good news again, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came not for the self-righteous, but for the, for the unrighteous. He came for losers. He came for sinners. He came for those who live on the margins of life. He came for ordinary people. And he also came for repenting, self-righteous people. And I think the difficulty is, is when we look at verse 39, I'm going to wrap it up really quickly with this. Verse 39 tells us that, unfortunately, I think Jesus is saying, unfortunately, for so many of you, not just you, but the text says, you're just going to continue to drink the old wine because the old wine has always been good enough. 
Do you see that there, verse 39? Essentially what that means is old dogs can't learn new tricks. It's hard to convince someone of the truth to drink something that is new when they've enjoyed something or think that they they enjoy something for so long. Whether it is living in their own self-righteousness or whether it is living by their own rules that, that they have created. Things that they've taught, things that they've boasted in, some things that they've lived out passionately, believing. Things that they've taught others. But I think the real truth is, is not that, that old dogs can't learn, uh, can't learn new tricks, but I think it is almost, almost old dogs can't learn new tricks. Because we see, and I've seen throughout the ages, in history, we see throughout the Bible, people like Paul, self-righteous as they come, Varsity, just man, stood naked and undone before Jesus. And yet by the miracle of grace, changed his life completely. So the warning, I think, for us is, yes, we are to delight in grace, trust in the righteousness of Christ, but let's just be warned. Maybe those things that we've been sipping on for so long, that old wine, is something we don't want to give up because we think it's that the new wine won't satisfy. It says, left me. But put the evidence, has it? Does it satisfy? As I'm climbing that ladder or trying to climb that ladder every day, isn't that the, one of those, the biggest burdens of your life? Jesus says, come to me all those who are weary and heavy laden and burdened and I will give you rest. The rest of grace and new wine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your time and your word and we pray that it would continue to work itself in us. So Father, help me by the power of your Holy Spirit to break the, the chains that I have fashioned for myself, of my own works, of the things in, that I try to drink to find joy. Oh, Father, give us a fresh taste of grace this morning. Let us taste and savor the goodness of Christ and be with us as we respond. In Christ's name, amen.